We're going to be faster than some of the other sermons of late, which have been tremendous. Really appreciate the work the guys have done. Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, verse 53. Um, Here's what we read, and this is Good Friday that is being talked about here. The Friday of Passion Week, and here we read these words. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Then he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony didn't agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you, going, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he says. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. And some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. As we look at this passage this morning, we are coming to very early Friday morning. It is the event of Passion Week where it is the focus of everything else. Our text is about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Latin word for cross is crux. The term crux has made its way into the Western languages We use it to say the crux of the issue. The crucial thing, crucial, is from the word crux, cross. It means the center of the thing. The cross became identified as the centerpiece of life and faith. This weekend in Jerusalem, which begins on Friday, changed everything. For Jesus and for the millions that would become his followers in centuries to come, All of the Bible pivots on and points to the crucifixion, the cross of Christ. We've been looking at Passion Week. Sunday was the triumphant entry. Monday was the day that Jesus cursed a fig tree, did the temple cleansing. Then on Tuesday, he returns, passes the fig tree, which is now wilted, and he explains what all that was about, goes back into the temple, and is there confronted by angry leaders, Multiple groups of them, Herodians, Pharisees, Sanhedrin, Sadducees, they come and one after another, the Zealots, each one presenting their own arguments to try to trip him up after the day before his cleansing of the temple. On Wednesday, it's a day of rest and recuperation. It is historically known in the church as Silent Wednesday. The only thing we know for certain happened on that day was that Judas betrayed him and enter into alignment with the religious leaders conspiring against him. Thursday, as Pastor Mike preached last week, the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal of Judas, 
The word Maundy is attached, attached to Thursday historically in the church, and the word Maundy is from the word, the Latin word for command or commandment. We get the word mandate from it. It is referring to the commandment of Jesus where he says, um, as I have loved you, so love one another. This is the great commandment that came out and is associated with that final message to his followers. And today is Good Friday. This morning I'd like to travel through that day briefly, quickly, looking at three great paradoxes. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition. And the first paradox we find is in the passage I just read. The judge of all is on trial. Here he comes, and, and we're told that there were actually three religious trials that took place. First, he appeared before a guy named Annas. John 18 tells us about this. Now, Annas, interestingly, was a deposed high priest. He got under the skin of the Roman authorities, so they took him out of the role as high priest. But he was so influential and such a power figure that the next six high priests were either his sons or son-in-laws. And they so deferred to dad that when they captured Jesus, the first guy they took him to was not the high priest Caiaphas. They took him to his father-in-law, Annas. And a brief encounter occurred there. Then he was shipped over to um, the Sanhedrin led by Caiaphas at Caiaphas' home. And then finally, formally condemned once dawn is hit because it was illegal to meet. Otherwise, they condemned him. Three different times he appears before religious leaders, and their response to him is striking. Verse 61 of our text this morning. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this is a remarkable statement. Because Jesus actually is quoting from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And in that, he refers to what was his favorite title for himself, Son of Man. It was a messianic title. And Jesus takes the title and he says, you'll see the Son of Man. I, I am who you say I am. And, and you'll see me as the Son of Man coming from, through the clouds from the, the hand of the mighty one. Daniel 17 depicts what his role will be. He will come as the judge. As the judge of the living and the dead, of the judge of the nations, it, it declares. And Jesus says to him, you have me on trial. I'm coming as the judge of all. I will come to earth from the very glory of God and judge the entire world. It is why the trial turned to a riot in the next verse. And in verse 63, they all condemned him as worthy of death. You see, Jesus is forcing us to see the paradox of this moment. There's been an enormous reversal of what should be. Everything is turned upside down. He should be in the chair of judgment, dispensing the sentence fairly and justly but instead he's standing where the accused stand the whole scene is aberrant 
It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. We see the absurdity of it. But the reason for their response to Jesus is clear. They have already turned on him. They have already rejected him being the son of man that they are looking for because he is not offering what they want. They do not want a Messiah who will come and take over as Lord. They want their own wills and choices. They want the son of man to come and declare the rightness of their position and to vanquish their uh, civil authorities that they would become the ultimate authorities in the kingdom that he would lead. They do not want a Messiah who will point out their moral flaws and their need of forgiveness and repentance as he so often did, as a matter of fact, did particularly two to three days prior to this when he called them whitewashed walls and tombs and, and said all kinds, he calls them vipers and snakes, all kinds of terrible things. They don't want a guy like that. They want a guy that will affirm their righteousness they want a guy who will look at them the way they look at them. They want a guy who will behave, who will do what they think the Messiah should do and how he should act. That's always what people do. That's always what prompts people when they put Jesus on trial. They insist that he behave a certain way or they reject him. It's, of course, the whole genesis and it's the whole power, the dynamic of, of, of modern, the modern neo-atheist movement, which is basically to say God doesn't behave in the way God should behave. There's evil in the world. There's injustice in the world. And so we'll punish him by saying he doesn't exist. That's how we'll respond. But basically it is them saying he doesn't behave how we think he should. So we'll punish him by not believing in him. C.S. Lewis talks about our propensity to put God on trial. He says it this way in his wonderful article entitled God in the Dock. The ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He's the judge, God is in the dock. And in England, the dock is where you stood under, under charge. He's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and defense, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. Do we have that quote? I don't know if we have that. Okay. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Here's the thing. When we look at the absurdity of this situation, the religious leaders thinking that the judge of the living and the dead, the one who before whom all will appear, who sovereignly superintends the moral universe, and they feel they have the right to question him, it is because he has not behaved. He has not performed as they expected. And then we start thinking a little more. 
And we realize the benefit in considering the absurdity of what's transpiring there in the high priest's palace because our own complaints against God, our own grumblings against the circumstances he allows in our lives, our refusal to let God be God as he defines himself look ominously similar at times to the reactions of the religious leaders. God will be God. And if God does not, if God is big enough for you to get mad at because of things he does or does not do, then he is big enough to be working in ways that you cannot comprehend. Secondly, we find a second paradox. The king of all subjecting himself. Mark 15, it's early Friday morning, and Jesus has now been brought to the palace of Pilate. And as he is brought there, he's brought from the religious leaders, he comes to the palace of Pilate and begins three civil trials. First of all, he's brought before Pilate. Pilate doesn't want anything to do with this baby, so he hears that Herod's there, who is a, a monarch in a local area, sends him to Pilate, uh, Herod, who's vacationing in Jerusalem, appears before him, then he's sent back to Pilate again, where Pilate passes sentence, as we find in Mark 15. And in this passage, I'll just read a couple of verses. Verse 1 of chapter 15, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. The interesting thing that takes place, and takes place with Herod, it takes place again with, with Pilate later on, is that the subject before the, religion, the civil leaders is about Jesus' kingship. And it's another bizarre scene. The pivotal moment of the hearing occurs in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gives kind of non-answer, you, you say so. It's the exact same words he uses as recorded in all four Gospels. This is what he said, didn't say anything else. Why did he, it's neither an affirmation or a denial, you say so. Why, why did he do that? I would suggest it's because he is a king, but not as Pilate thinks he is. Jesus has already said in John 18 earlier, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to protect me and prevent my arrest by the, religious, by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. We need to just see quickly Jesus in the eyes of Rome and what's going on here. You see, in AD, this is AD 30 approximately. In AD 6, about 20 to 25 years earlier, Rome had done something unique in Judea. What Rome typically did whenever they conquered a people or people were under their, their, their control in the empire, they always tried to appoint a local governor from the people to be over them. It worked better. It felt like this is their guy. And even though he was answerable to Rome, uh, it felt better. And they tended to be more loyal. It never worked in Judea. As a matter of fact, in AD 6, they finally gave up and, and they got rid of a guy named Archelaus. 
and they brought in what was called a, a prefect. And this individual, uh, excuse me, a, a, a procurator, a prefect something, a procurator. A procurator was an individual who was appointed directly by Rome. He was a direct report to the emperor. And basically, he was there to sort of supervise because these people had, had demonstrated they just couldn't even have a, one of their own guys. They didn't have anybody capable, they didn't have, and, and they, they were just such a problem. Judea was on the, at the farthest end, the eastern edge of the empire. It was just a, a, an outpost. I mean, it was a, a, a bunch of unruly, problem, uh, not big-time producing people for the empire. So they appointed this procurator, and Pilate actually was the sixth. They tended to go through him quick. And so... Pilate is there from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. Jesus is A.D. 30 approximately. As he's there, Pilate has no respect for the Jews. Matter of fact, Pilate didn't even live in Jerusalem. He and his wife lived in Caesarea, which was on the seacoast. It was a nice balmy place. He only came to Jerusalem when he had to, and apparently he had come this time. I'm sure he wished he hadn't. He and his wife were there, and they bring this guy and they say, this guy is the king of the Jews. Now, you can almost imagine what Pilate thinks. You can't be serious. King of the Jews. You guys can't even have a governor. You can't even have a mayor of, of this thing. We have to entrust someone like me to come in to keep you guys somewhat in check. You think you're going to have a king? And then he looks at Jesus, who's right now has already been bloodied and beaten by, the, by the, the guards in the religious. I mean, he's a mess. He's been up all night long. And he comes in, and here's this vagabond, and he's looking at Jesus, and he says, basically, you can hear him saying what he has is pity for the man. And so he tries to send him. He doesn't want to pass on it. He says, why don't I give you this guy? You know, you want Barabbas, but he's a thief and a murderer, and how about I give you this guy? No, well, then I'll send him to Herod. Herod sends him back, and finally he has to condemn him. So what he condemns him to is crucifixion. Now, crucifixion was, a, was the Romans' way of simply dealing with problems. It was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. Even if you were a mass murder, if you were Charles Manson, and you mass murdered uh, a group of innocent people, and you were a Roman citizen, you didn't hang on the, cru on the cross, you got the, the, you, you got the quick way. Uh, they took care of you quickly, quick and to the point. You were beheaded, literally quick and to the point. So crucifix was only to cause intimidation to people. When A.D. 70 occurred and Rome attacked Jerusalem when they rebelled against the empire, what they did with all the, the people that they caught in the area outside of the city, Jerusalem, Jewish soldiers, on Mount of Olives, which is on the eastern side of the city, they took 500 people a day to intimidate the people in the city, 500 people a day, and they put them on crucifixes. Romans did it every day until the city fell. What they were saying was, this is what happens to people that think they can snub the face of Rome. You raise your fist to us, this is what we do. And so he says, look, here's this guy. I mean, he doesn't even have an army. 
He doesn't have any followers. I mean, Pilate doesn't even go and say, well, who are his followers? You know, we, we got to gather some of them. He doesn't arrest anybody. There's no aides. There's no, there's no sergeants. There's no gen. There's nobody. The only one is we got this one guy. Okay, one and done. Put him on a cross. It's over. It's done. This is how Rome viewed Jesus. To, to think of an individual who seems less kingly is almost unimaginable. Everything about this scene highlights the apparent weakness and powerlessness of Jesus to the Romans. Yet the prophets of God, both pre and post, now see what the eye of history sees. That Rome's come and go, nations rise and fall, empires build cities and palaces and fortresses and arsenals, and they all become the dust of history. Isaiah saw it 600 years before when he saw nations in the context of God he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. But his contemporary Daniel saw the Son of Man, Jesus, in this context. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus said it this way, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't stand against it. God says about the nations of the world, he says about the Romans of the, Rome, Rome of the world, he says they're just, a, they're just a drop in the bucket. I mean, you take a drop and you hear this splatter in the bottom. He says, I never say that about my son's kingdom. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion. It will last for all eternity and millions of people throughout the globe will align themselves with this kingdom of Christ that will permeate into every culture and people group in every era. But that king stands before a local pure procurator and willingly ex accepts and subjects himself before his sentence. It's a paradox. It's an absurdity. The last thing, and just touch on it, the creator of all dying. Mark 15, verse 29 Jesus is put on the cross at 9 o'clock. He expired about 3 o'clock. Verse 29 of Mark 15, those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. They thought he was there by human weakness, but he was actually restrained on the cross by two voluntary limitations. One was submission to the Father's will. D.A. Carson, his great book, Scandalous, says it this way. One of the reasons they were so blind is that they thought in terms of merely physical restraints. When they said he can't save himself, they meant that the nails held him there. The soldiers prevented any possibility of his rescue. His powerlessness and weakness guaranteed his death. For them, the words he can't save himself expressed a physical impossibility. We can go to the next one. The truth of the matter is that Jesus could not save himself, nor be, 
not because of any physical constraint, but because of a moral imperative. He came to do his father's will, and he would not be deflected from it. The one who cries in anguish in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done, is under such an imperative from his heavenly father that disobedience is finally unthinkable. It was not nails that held Jesus to that wretched cross. It was his unqualified resolution out of love for his father to do his father's will. The other voluntary limitation that put Jesus there was his love for others. That Jesus Christ came to die in our place. And it's a paradox. The creator of of life itself dies. The judge of all is on trial. The king of all things of the everlasting dominion is subjected to human authority. The whole picture of Friday is this astonishing absurdity. And yet it is the story that has changed the lives of people throughout the millennia of time since. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all these truths. You are our judge. You are our king. You are our rescuer. Thank you for coming, for enduring out of love and obedience to the Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.